How many of you agree your heart's a pretty important organ? It's pretty important, isn't it? It's, uh, you know, arguably one of the most precious and most significant things you have is your heart. I've known many people who've lived years without a brain. I've, I've not known anyone live well. I've known some without a heart, too. But, you know, your heart, if you were to live to be 75, that your heart would beat around 3 billion times. It's not, not incredible. Three, boom, boom. Three billion times. That's, that's an incredible thing. Well, this morning, as precious as your anatomical heart is, we're going to look at the heart of Jesus and, and not his physical heart, but his spiritual heart. You know, when the Bible talks about our heart, and it talks about it a whole lot, 99.9% of the time, it is not talking about your ticker. It's talking about your mind and your will and who you are. Your heart is who you are. It's, it's the deep-seated part of your personality and what makes you and who, who makes you what you are. And this morning as we look at Jesus' heart in Mark chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 13. I think we're going to see some things that, that may surprise you, but I hope will challenge us as we see what God really wants us to be, obviously, in our lives. Here's the first thing. When you see Jesus' heart, Jesus loves sinners. Jesus Christ loves sinners. What does Jesus' heart look like? He loves sinners. In verse 13 through 15, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came in and began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphas, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and he followed him. In verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, the scene is this Sea of Galilee. In some places, it's called the Sea of Tiberias. Here, it's referred to as the lake. It was called the Lake of Gennesaret in some places, but it's the same place. And Jesus is walking along near Capernaum, walking along the Lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, and he's preaching and teaching, and he sees this guy, Matthew, wrote the book of Matthew, uh, also called Levi. He sees him in his tax collector's booth, and he calls him, and he says, hey, man, I'm wanting you to put everything in your life aside, and I want you to follow me. We would say he was making a radical call to give his life to Jesus Christ. And Matthew, it says he left everything, and he followed him. Now, it's significant. Matthew sat probably on what was called the Great International Highway or, or the Great Road of this time. We've got a map, and we'll kind of show it to you. Because it is significant, and Matthew is probably a very wealthy person. That's the Sea of Galilee right there where my red dot is. That's Capernaum. That was Jesus' home base in the northern part of Palestine in his day, which was called Galilee. There's Damascus. This great road started in Damascus, and it went to Capernaum, and then near Jerusalem, but it veered off. That's the Mediterranean Sea there, and then went all the way down to, to Egypt, and Matthew probably had a very lucrative business right there on that great international highway. And the way the tax collector, they, they sat in a booth, maybe may like me sitting in a chair right here, and, and when you would come by, how, how they worked, it was very, very interesting. The tax collector, the tax collector worked for the Roman government. We'll, we'll go back to the significance of that in a moment. 
And he would sit by the road. It wasn't like the IRS. You didn't mail something in. You didn't get a letter or you didn't go to an office. They would sit by these roads, and when you came by, they collected revenue from you, okay? Uh, again, we'll touch more on this in a moment. Jesus calls this guy, and he says he le- leaves everything, and he follows Christ. And then in verse 15, while they're having dinner at Levi's house, many of the fellow tax collectors and other, it says sinners, you notice that, come and they eat with him. Apparently, it was a farewell party and an introduction party. Levi, Matthew, is leaving, and so he's saying goodbye to his friends, but he's also bringing all of his friends, we'll see more in a moment, of ill repute to meet Jesus Christ. It's a great event. Everything's wonderful up to this point uh, when you begin to see that he brings a lot of bad people into the house. Now, To give you a little history on the tax collector, the tax collector sat by the road. Here's how they got their money. The Roman government would give them a certain amount of money they had to collect, okay? That money had to be collected to go to the government. And then everything else they got above that was profit. Can you see where this could be troublesome? They probably had some Roman soldiers, especially at major highways, that were with them to enforce this. But let's say Brandon and Wayne come by, and they're my buddies, and I say, well, give me a quarter, you know, whatever. And then Don comes by, and I can tell by looking at him, he's a multi-multi-millionaire. And so I just, I say, look, buddy, here's what you owe me. And you know what? You didn't have much say. You had to give it. So they were notorious for, for cheating people and charging exorbitant fees to get uh, to, to get their money. They, they were oftentimes very, very wealthy people. Uh, they were so notorious and they were so known to be dishonest. Archaeologists found, literally found a tombstone that dated back to Jesus' day of a man named Sabinius who had been a tax collector. I'm not making this up. Here's what was on his tombstone. On his tombstone, it says, here lies an honest tax collector. Here lies an honest tax collector. I don't know what you do for a living, but let's say Josh is a youth minister, and someday, 2,000 years from now, they find his tomb, and it says, here lies an honest youth minister. You know, those people are going to think that youth ministers in this era were pretty corrupt, weren't they? Uh, Lucian, a Greek writer, said tax collectors were to be classified with prostitutes, with, with adulterers, and the worst of sinners. And so these are the people that Jesus Christ is gathering around and having dinner with. But not only was that going on, it, it's, it's also interesting, it says with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners. Now, what did the word sinner here mean? Well, it meant someone, first of all, who didn't follow the Mosaic law, that the, the Jewish laws, which is our Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, they didn't obey that. They didn't pay attention to that or to the oral traditions that the Jewish people had passed on. It also meant someone that was a habitual, known, bad sinner. Now, that's very important. It meant someone who was a habitual, known, and bad sinner. So here, here's the situation. As you can see, things are getting pretty sticky at this point. Jesus Christ is having dinner with these tax collectors. By the way, a tax collector could not act as a judge or a witness in a court of law. They were known to be so corrupt. Very important. Tax collectors were not allowed to come to the synagogue. That was the Jewish version of the local church. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine us saying, this group of people cannot come to First Baptist. They are not welcome here. 
And this is the people Jesus is partying with, in a good way partying with. And not only were these tax collectors, but it was also these people who were really known to be pretty big stinkers in the community. You say, well, he's having a meal with them. No big deal. In this day and age, the meal was a big deal. Folks, when they ate breakfast, it was kind of on the fly. When they ate lunch, they might do it standing up at work. But supper was a big deal to them. They would gather around the table. Oftentimes, it was a horseshoe-type table in, in these homes. And they didn't sit. They, they reclined. They would recline on their left elbow and lay back on couches. And supper time was a very intimate time, especially if you had friends and family over. Okay, think about this. This was before you could turn on the TV, Right? Isn't it funny you go to a restaurant today and you can eat and watch eight different shows at the same time? We are a weird group of people, aren't we? And not only was it before the TV, it was before the iPhone. So someone couldn't sit there and take a bite. Uh, it, it was before the, the iPad or the laptop. In other words, as strange as this may sound, when you ate with someone, you actually had to look at them and talk to them. Wouldn't that have been terrible? Wouldn't that have been terrible? But in Jesus' day, it was a great thing. It was a special thing. It was a time of fellowship and intimacy. And here's what I'm trying to get across to you. Jesus Christ loved the people that others considered moral outcast. He didn't just accept them. He befriended them. He didn't just say, oh, God loves you because God has to love everyone. He created them. He said, look, guys, I don't approve of what you do, but I love you. Let's go and let's fellowship and let's get to know each other. And I want to tell you this morning, no matter what you have done in your past, no matter what you did this last week, no matter what you did last night, God loves you. God loves you and God wants to be your friend. I love what Max Licato, the Christian writer and preacher, said, God loves you just the way you are. Now, he loves you too much to leave you the way you are, but God loves you just the way you are. You want to know what the heart of Jesus Christ looks like? The heart of God looks like it loves people of all shapes and forms, all colors, and all people on the moral, ethical scale. Isn't that awesome? Maybe you don't think it's awesome. A lot of people 2,000 years ago didn't think it's awesome. In fact, my second thought today is this. A lot of professing Christians and a lot of churches struggle with this. Just like they did 2,000 years ago. You stand up in church and you say, God loves everybody. God wants everyone to be a part of his team. And you would think people would stand up and clap. But they sure didn't do it 2,000 years ago. Let's look in verse 15 and 16 what these wonderful people did here. In verse 15, again, the great story. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, these tax collectors and sinners, these habitual known sinners, were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law and the Pharisees saw him eating with these sinners and tax collectors, they were so excited, and they said, Man, this is awesome. These guys are going to get saved and be pillars in the community and in the church. No, that's not what it says. It says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The New Living Translation of the New Testament translates it very correctly. It says, why does he eat with this scum? Why does he eat with these scum? 
You see, in Jesus' day, a devout Jewish person would not eat with a Gentile or a non-Jewish person, period, much less one who had a bad reputation. And a Jewish person certainly wasn't, uh, that was devout was not going to eat with someone who had been kicked out of the synagogue. They weren't going to have anything to do with those people at all. Who were these teachers of the law, number one? These were experts in the Old Testament. They were experts in what we would say, the, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They were experts in their oral traditions. In other words, the extra laws they had added to the laws. The Pharisees were kind of like the green beret of religious people in this era. Many of them were, were scribes and experts in the law. The word Pharisee means separate. These were, listen, this is very important, very conservative people. Man, they believed the Bible. I want to tell you, and I believe this with all my heart, these guys knew their Bible, our Old Testament, better than anybody you know knows your Bible. They knew what the Bible said to the letter of the law. Here's another thing. This is kind of creepy, but this gives you a little context. Jesus is eating in Levi's house, and he's, he's eating with these people of bad reputation, and in this day and age, if someone in your neighborhood was having a big gathering or big party and you weren't invited, you could still go down to the house. And depending on the time of the year, they left the windows and the doors open, and this was not considered rude at all. You could go, let's say that Brandon and I aren't invited, we can still come to your house and stand outside your door and your window and observe what's going on. They'd get a shotgun in Louisiana for that, wouldn't they? But, you know, that was acceptable. That was normal. So these guys are standing outside, and they just cannot believe this guy who is saying he is the Messiah, this great teacher of God, is buddying up with all these bad and rotten people. You see, here's their problem, guys. They not only hated the sin, they hated the sinner. They not only were disgusted by people they didn't think were up to their moral standard, what their behavior, they were disgusted with them. They were moral, spiritual, arrogant snobs, pretentious and haughty. I first heard the word snob when I was in fifth grade, and I didn't know what it was, but it sounded like a cool word to call somebody. And I remember my sister and one of her friends were talking about this, this group of people that stuck their nose up every time they would walk past them. They were snooty. They were snobby. Did you know body language experts actually say when someone condescends towards you or looks down upon you, you watch for this, they will oftentimes raise their nose in your presence. The Pharisees probably got a lot of dust in their nostrils through the years because they were snobs. They looked at these people, and they literally hated them. I had a wonderful deacon in another church tell me, Chris, the Pharisees are alive and well today just as they were 2,000 years ago. That's absolutely the truth. Several years ago, we had a guest speaker here, a guy named Dwayne Blue. Do any of y'all remember when Dwayne Blue was here? Dwayne Blue was a motorcycle, he was in a, a biking gang, he was a drug addict, 
horrible past. He got saved. He was, he's married to Iris. Iris was coming to speak that day too, but she got sick. Iris was a prostitute, a drug addict, spent eight years in a ladies' prison and became a Christian. Listen to what happened. When Iris became a Christian, she was so excited She joined the church, and immediately what she did is she started bringing her prostitute friends to church with her. And they began to get saved, and they were baptizing them. Isn't that awesome? You know what? That church didn't think it was awesome. That church literally kicked her out of the church, officially removed her from membership because she was bringing the bad people into their church. I want to tell you something. Don't stand near those church people at the judgment because, man, they got it coming. I want to tell you, that's not far off from a lot of religious people. It's very sad to know the heart of Jesus says, no matter what a person's done, I can hate their behavior, but I love them. But still, a lot of churches and a lot of church people struggle very hard with that. We still hate the person as much as we hate the sin. Here's the third thought. Jesus is right and the religious people are wrong. You notice I put that in the present tense because that's always been true and it always will be true. Jesus Christ was right and the religious people were wrong. I won't read it again, but the story that Jesus is with these people and he's loving them and he's involved in their life. And the Pharisees were disgusted by that. And let me tell you, that was the the norm of their religion. That was what they grew up with. That's what makes you feel better. Doesn't it make you feel better when you can look at somebody and you can look down at them and you can say, you know what? They're worse than I am. (laughs) Let me tell you, you can always find somebody that's worse than you. And it's so wrong. And Jesus Christ was right then, and he's always right. And by the way, Christians, did you know who our example and model is? It's Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 6. Would you read this out loud with me? Read it out loud with me. Whoever live as who? As Jesus did. Jesus is our example here. In other words, we love the the sinner. We can hate the sin. We live in a day and age where political correctness is seeping in and it's telling us we can't say things are wrong. Yes, we can. Wrong is always wrong and right is always right. But we can love people and not agree with their behavior. And by the way, I bet there's things you do other people don't think's right either. Amen? If you're married, I guarantee you there's at least one person that disagrees with some of your behavior. <laughs> okay, here's the question. Young people and all people, how do, you, how do you get involved with people who aren't where they need to be with God without getting pulled into it? That's the question that's so important. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus was in church weekly. They called it the synagogue. Building himself up with the worship, the singing, the preaching, the teaching. Jesus spent a lot of time in personal prayer. You've got to be praying. 
Jesus knew the Word of God. He must have spent a lot of time in his Bible. And Jesus' best friends were Christians. James, Peter, and John, his three inner circles. And then, then it spread out to the disciples. How do, you, how do you love people without getting dragged into their mess? You constantly develop your spiritual life. You don't date somebody who's not where they need to be with God, but you build yourself up. And when you do that, you put yourself in a position to bring them up. Jesus didn't go to the bars. Jesus wasn't with them when they were getting high and they were doing bad stuff. In fact, Jesus brought them into his world. He didn't go into the sinful spots with them, but he was one with them. Years ago, I heard a story. It was a pastor named Tim Timmons, and that's a name you don't forget. Tim sounds like Chris Christopher. And Tim Timmons was a pastor in California, still may be. And he joined a tennis club. He didn't know anybody in the tennis club. So the way it worked, you would go and you would, you would sign up and they would pair you with somebody. So he signs up. He goes out, and here comes his partner. And Tim Timmons recognizes this guy. This guy is a producer of pornographic films in Southern California. It's about 20 years ago. So they begin to, to uh, swat the ball back and forth, volleying a little bit with each other. The guy asks Tim Timmons, he says, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a pastor. And that guy goes, oh. He said, you know who I am? Preacher said, yep. The preacher, do you know who I am? Second time. Yep. He said, do you really know who I am? He said, yeah, are we going to play tennis or just sit here and look at each other? So they played tennis. They liked each other. They agreed to play next week. They began to play every week and play tennis together. Tim Timmons wasn't involved in what that guy was doing. He was praying for him. He was loving him. He was inviting him to church. God never come to church. Finally, a year later, the guy comes to church, sneaks in the back, sits down, leaves early. After church, a lady comes running up to the preacher. Tim, did you see who was in church Sunday morning? Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you know what that guy does for a living? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do, and you let him in? Oh, yeah, I play tennis with him every week. <gasps> and about a year later, guess what? That guy was saved and baptized into their church. You're not going to reach anybody if you don't love people. Some of you right now, if you've got little kids, man, that is so awesome, and pray they never get off track. But you're, you're going to be a one in, out of a 200 parents whose kids don't get off track. And it humbles you, and it reminds you that we're all sinners. <laughs> but you're never going to reach people if you cut them off. What about, what about as a church? What about as a church? 2,000 years ago, can you imagine this? They told tax collectors, you cannot come into our worship services. Can you imagine that? You can't come in. You're not good enough. Wow. Folks, let me tell you three things this church exists for. This church exists to glorify Jesus Christ. It exists for people who are saved to, to help you. And it exists for the worst people in Ruston who need Jesus Christ. 
You know, when we do church services, worship services, let me tell you, we do services for three reasons. To honor and glorify Jesus. To challenge, convict, encourage, and sometimes break in half the Christian. And so that the lost person that's here can understand and come to Jesus Christ. We do it for three reasons. We are not a holy huddle. We are the body of Jesus Christ. That's biblical. That's not my opinion. Years ago in one of my churches, someone came in one Sunday, and a young person went to one of my deacons and asked this question, what is that person doing here? What is that person doing in our church? And my deacon said a great thing. Where, where is, this is the best place they could be. That person ended up becoming a Christian. You see, the heart of Jesus was always right, and the heart of the Pharisees has always been wrong on this issue. We don't embrace sin, but we embrace people. We, we say the Bible is the Word of God. It's our truth. Jesus is our standard, and we'll never compromise on those things. And someday they may throw us in prison for saying homosexuality is sin or for saying adultery or fornication is sin. But you know what? we got to say those things, don't we? But people struggling with those things, we have to love them, and we have to say, we want you here. Let me give you one last thought that may help you a little bit. We're all sinners. It's an encouraging last thought. Verse 17 is a stunning statement. On hearing what the tax collector, or the, the religious leader said, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Some of the best Bible scholars I read this week say this. Jesus may have very well been sarcastic at this point. Jesus wasn't saying to these Pharisees, you're okay, you don't need a doctor. You're good, you're right with God. What he was saying is this. The only people that can be helped are the ones that realize they've got a problem. And sometimes the people with the biggest problems are the ones that carry the biggest Bibles. You know, Brandon's our staff counselor, and he does a great job. Brandon's got a hard job. You know, if you go to the doctor and he says you've got strep throat, they can hold you down and shoot you full of penicillin, and you will get better eventually. Most of the time. You go to a counselor, you've got to admit you've got a problem. You've got to admit that you need help. You've got to be willing to work on things. And people don't like to do that, do they? That's tough. See, the Pharisees like to look. They like to look at everybody else and say, man, your kids are bad. You, you're not up to my moral standard. Jesus said, you guys are absolutely kidding yourself. You see, everybody in this room, just like those Pharisees, you're either a saved sinner or a lost sinner, but you're a sinner this morning. And I would tell you something that's kind of scary. If you and I find ourselves, if we find ourselves being Pharisees, if we find ourselves with a condescending, snooty attitude towards other people morally, spiritually, at the very least, we're a Christian who's moved away from God. At the very worst, we're not a Christian at all. 
Let's pray. If you are a Christ follower, I want to challenge you right now to to examine your heart. Where are you with Jesus? Where are are you more like the Pharisees or are you more like Jesus? And if you're not a Christian or you're unsure, I want to encourage you right where you're seated. Man, let's seal the deal with you and God this morning. Pray with me and and just say, God, I want to repent this morning. I want to turn from my sins. Jesus, I believe you're God's son who died and arose for me. And today I give you my life. Let me have your attention just for a moment. When we stand in just a second, maybe you prayed and asked Christ in your heart today. Or maybe you're ready to do that. We're going to have ministers down front. We would love to help you with that decision. Step out and come and do that. Maybe you're here today and you'd like to join our church. I want to tell you, we are a church that loves sinners. If that's the kind of church you want to be a part of, one way you can join is by easing down the aisle in a moment and coming. You can join this morning. Come and do that today. The rest of us here as Christians, where you're standing or at the altar, I want to ask you, do business with God. If you measure out this morning and you're more like a religious teacher of Jesus' day versus being like Jesus, repent. And ask God to give you his heart. Let's stand. And as we sing, respond to Christ today. Respond to him this morning.